I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from evangelical communities and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the Retreat Con will also feature a special event story slam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited, so don't miss out. Sign up with the link in the show notes. This is an episode with Mark Charles introducing us to the doctrine of discovery. In my words, the doctrine of discovery is church-sanctioned colonization a doctrine that still impacts us today. Mark Charles's book is called Unsettling Truths, and that's a bit of a foreshadowing for this episode, as it's likely going to be unsettling. Here is the episode with Mark Charles. So I'd like to start just by introducing myself, both mm-hmm. for your audience and for you. So yat eh, Mark Charles Yenish yeah, sin beke dene anishle, doto higlini chin. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identity comes from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toheglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbekedina. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni. And that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from what's now called Washington, D.C. But these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And so the Piscataway, they're the nation that they were living here and hunting here farming here and fishing here, raising their families here and burying their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they're still here. I want to acknowledge the Piscataway as the hosts of the land where I'm living. I want to thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Thank you. Yeah, in regards to the Doctrine of Discovery, the Doctrine of Discovery, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church. They say things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. The Doctrine of Discovery is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, Whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their lands are yours to take. Mm. So that's the doctrine that let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people because they did not see them as human. Mm-hmm. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was quite literally lost at sea, land in what they called the New World and claim to have discovered it. Mm-hmm. even though it was already inhabited by millions of people. Mm-hmm. So the first sentence of the first chapter of Unsettling Truth says you cannot discover lands already inhabited, which sounds like a no-duh statement. 
but we've been teaching as a nation in our history, in our in our social sciences, in our in our lore of who we are as a nation. We've been teaching for 250 years that Columbus discovered America, that he is the discoverer of these lands. And the only way you can claim he discovered these lands is if you dehumanize the people who are already living here, which is exactly what our founding documents do. Our Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages, a constitution, never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. And beginning in 1823, and as recently as 2005, the United States Supreme Court references the doctrine of discovery as the legal precedent for land titles, making the arguments that even though natives were here first, but because we're savages, we only have the right of occupancy to the land. And Europeans, who are I guess, fully human, they have the right of discovery to the land. Therefore, they have the fee title. So therefore, they are the people who are truly sovereign over these lands. And it so, comes out of this like mindset of like conquering and like taking over and like, and then the nefarious part of it is it's like done in the name of God. And it's like, we're like doing this for God. That's the part that just like, uh, gets me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when you look at it, and we look at this very closely in the book, so the myth of American exceptionalism, which is not just the myth that says Americans are better than everybody else. It's a myth that says Americans have a unique relationship with the God of Abraham and have a land covenant with that God. And when you read the book of Genesis, or of Deuteronomy and Joshua, right, when God commands Israel to take possession of their promised lands, the command implies, actually doesn't even implies, explicitly states, that means they need to kill everybody who already lives there. There's mm -hmm. another native author, Stephen Newcomb, who wrote a book called Pagans in the Promised Land, right? Which absolutely just implies, what do you do with the pagans who live in your promised lands? Well, you commit genocide against them. You destroy them, mm -hmm. which is exactly what this nation did. The United States of America has did and is doing to indigenous peoples, both physically actually committing genocide, as well as culturally, which is what the boarding schools and the forced assimilation was all about, to just destroying our sovereignty, which is what the whole relationship of the United States of America is the trustee of native nations. And we are domestic dependents upon, you know, this this white authority figure that governs this country. What do you say to the folks who are like, okay, that happened in the Bible. And then people who take that thing that happened in the Bible, where they do go into the promised land and kill everyone. And then like try to translate it into modern day times. Like where did that jump come from? So, I mean, that jump happens many places, right? If I mean, when you look at chapters three and four of our book on selling truths, we show how that jump started when Jesus, right? Well, go back to the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel, when they had their land covenant with the God of Abraham, one of the barometers of their land covenant was their prosperity. If they obeyed God, they would be blessed and prosper in their land. If they disobeyed God, they would be exiled and removed from their lands. So it wasn't their only barometer, but their prosperity was one of their barometers. When Jesus came as their Messiah figure, 
A, he didn't come like they expected the Messiah to come. He was born in a barn. He grew up as a refugee, you know, and he turned down several opportunities to rule the world and have an earthly kingdom. Satan said, if you bow down to me, I'll give you what was already given to me, which is the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus walked away when Jesus, you know, fed several thousand people from a lunch they stole from a little kid. You know, the people came to make him king by force and he walked away. Mm -hmm. And he said to his disciples, blessed are you, not when you're prospering, but when you're persecuted. Mm-hmm. And he called, told his disciples that not that he was going to be persecuted and crucified. And if they wanted to follow him, they had to pick up their cross and go behind him. And so he introduced what I would call a barometer of suffering, right? If the Old Testament Israel knew they were doing well with God when they prospered, the disciples of Jesus would know they were doing well in their discipleship when they were being persecuted. And they didn't like that one bit. Mm-hmm. Right. So they just completely rejected it. And and even when he when they came for him in the garden, the disciples fled. Peter tried to defend themselves with a sword and cut off the ears and got rebuked by Jesus and the ear got repaired. I mean, you know, they had it all wrong. And so they fled. They left Jesus to die alone. And it wasn't until Pentecost that they actually realized that, OK, this life is about suffering. And as a result, almost all of the disciples died a martyr's death. And that was the story of the church through the fourth century, when Eusebius set out to do something that had never been done before, which is to record an ecclesiastical history, the Mm -hmm. history of the church. And so his book, which is this volume of 11 books, actually, right, it establishes the divinity of Christ. In the early books, it holds up the, the martyrs as these pious individuals who are sharing in the suffering of Christ. And then... In between books eight and nine, he inserts a book called The Book of the Martyrs, and he writes about what was called the Great Persecution. And the Great Persecution was one of the bloodiest, deadliest, most violent persecutions in the history of the church. And Eusebius records it happened in his own backyard, right? It happened in the lands he was living in. It happened in Palestine, right where he was. And he knew, he saw many of the martyrs himself He saw them being persecuted, and he actually knew many of them by name. And so in in that book, the Book of the Martyrs, he really shows how the the persecution touches him. And then after that book, his whole stance towards martyrdom changes. And instead of holding them up as pious people sharing the suffering of Christ, he begins to focus on on the emperors and how they might be able to help end the suffering. Mm hmm and he feeds his heresy to Constantine after he's already ordained him as a God-ordained emperor of Rome. And then, right, I mean, if you're writing a book called Ecclesiastical History, the history of the church, the fact that you're writing it demonstrates you're writing merely an early part of this long saga. Because we're clearly told in the scriptures that the church will end, right? The Ecclesiastes will come to a conclusion when the bridegroom of the church returns, Christ. So the fact that you're writing a book about the history is evidence that hasn't happened yet. So you're writing an early part of this saga. But if you read the last chapter of the last book in the volume of Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History, you will see he absolutely does have a conclusion. And his conclusion is the salvation that comes through to Rome 
not through Christ, but through Constantine. Hmm. And so, you know, because if you want to ordain God-ordained emperors of Rome, if you want to establish a worldly Christian empire, and I said this to people in Orange City, Iowa, just a few weeks ago, your biggest obstacle is not <laughs> your opposing political party. Your biggest obstacle is Christ, because he was adamant his kingdom was not of this earth. It was from somewhere else. And so for Eusebius to establish a heretical Christian empire, the first thing he had to do was to write Christ out of ecclesiastical history, mm -hmm. which is what that book is all about. And then his second book, Life of the Blessed Constantine, is just flat out heresy, elevating Constantine to this divine space. So, so that's the seed of it, right? That's what leads to the crusades that's what leads to the just war theory that's what leads to all of these things because now if you have a christian empire right and empires are not about losing their life they're about preserving their life and 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 creating these these long institutions and so now you have a church that's called to lose its life but you have an institution christian empire which is charged with saving its life and so this gets even more embedded again, like I said, the Crusades and these, and that's what eventually leads to the writing of the doctrine of discovery and this notion of not only, I mean, the way we define it in the book and even in my speaking is it's a white Christian nationalist male supremacist doctrine. And it's the fruit of a church that has prostituted itself out to the empire. And so that's what gets embedded into the foundations of our country. And this is where this, this notion of a Christian empire is a value of both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And and so when you look at that, when you and and that's what gets embedded. So in, in we we point out in the book, I, I trace it back to the sermon preached by John Winthrop in 1630 when he was on board a ship and they were in what's now called the Boston Harbor. He was with a group of colonists to plant the Boston colony. And on board that ship, he preaches a sermon titled A Model of Christian Charity, right? In this book or in this sermon, he refers to the colonists that he's with as a city upon a hill. Yep. He's borrowing from the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount telling his disciples to be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill, shining their good deeds into this dark world. He goes on to exhort them in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. They should rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. They should keep the unity of the spirit within the bonds of peace. These are just your basic Protestant Christian exhortations. At the end of his sermon, he's doing what most pastors try and do, which is compel their congregants to heed their exhortations by quoting from the Old Testament. And so the passage that, that John Winthrop decides to quote from is Deuteronomy 30, which is the passage where the people of Israel are standing at the banks of the Jordan River, ready to cross over and take possession of their promised lands. And they're being reminded of their land covenant with the God of Abraham. That says, if they obey him, they'll be blessed. And it says, but if our hearts shall turn away, so that we will not obey and we worship other gods, we shall surely perish out of the good land, whether we pass over this river 
to possess it. Now, Deuteronomy 30 says river, but in his sermon, John Winthrop changes that word river to vast sea. Mm. So the reason he does that is because they didn't cross the river, they crossed an ocean. Mm -hmm. So he's implying, based on the teachings of Jesus to be a city on a hill, based on the model of Old Testament Israel's promised lands, they are standing on the shores of their promised land, ready to take possession of it. And that's problematic because Deuteronomy 20 is just one example where the people of Israel are told in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Mm -hmm. Completely destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. So promised lands for one people is literally a God-ordained genocide for the other group of people. Mm-hmm. And that is where this, I, I call that sermon, John Winthrop's Model of Christian Charity, I call that sermon the birth of American exceptionalism. That idea percolates for about 100 years, that's 1630, mid-1700s, these colonies begin expanding westward, they go past the Appalachian Mountains, they go past the Mississippi River, end of the 1700s. They have the Second Great Awakening, so there's this growth in churches, this renewal of denominations. Now, early 1800s, the term manifest destiny is coined. Mm-hmm. They believe that this nation has the God-given right to rule these lands from sea to shining sea. And the myth of American exceptionalism is one of the most bipartisan values in American politics. 2016, Donald Trump is running to say, make America great again. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton responds, America's great already. Mm-hmm. In the general debate, she expands and says, America's great because America's good. And Donald looks at her, turns and looks directly at her and says, I agree with her. Mm-hmm. I agree with everything she just said. This myth of American acceptance is held by both parties, right? President Obama, who came into office challenging the myth of American exceptionalism, was accused of going on an apology tour. By the end of his presidency, he was singing that song almost like no other. He takes the stage at the DNC in 2016 and says America's already pretty great. Cory Booker- Do you think that had to happen? I just, like in the story that you were writing in the books that you're writing, it's like, there's like someone like starts out like pointing out, you know, and then they just kind of, lose their steam is it just like pushback because this is so embedded into the culture it's like i cannot survive if i don't well so i'm almost there explaining why he did exactly that and so so cory booker right this just makes it very clear he was in 2016 he still is a senator from new jersey but he definitely had political aspirations he ran in 2020 and on on the main stage at the dnc he acknowledges that the constitution excludes women he acknowledges that the declaration of independence calls native savages and he acknowledges the three-fifths compromise dehumanizing african people now most politicians at that level don't acknowledge any of those parts of our foundation but he acknowledged all three but then he said and i would say directly to the white landowning men of the Democratic Party, but these things do not detract from America's greatness. 
He would never say that to a room full of women. He would never say that to a room full of African-Americans. He would never say that to a room full of Native peoples. But when you have a mixed audience with white landowning men who literally hold the key to your political future in their hands, you have to affirm their exceptionalism. In the book, we define American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism of a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past as well as its current racist and sexist reality. Mm -hmm. So the way the nation feels, the way white landowning men feel better about the history that they're standing on is they tell themselves we're exceptional. We have a land covenant with the God of Abraham. Therefore, that gave us permission to commit genocide. It gave us permission to enslave. That's what was expected of us. And so this, and so if you want to be a politician, yeah, and if, if you want to get the support of white landowning men, you absolutely have to learn how to affirm their exceptionalism, the yep. myth of their exceptionalism. Yep. And so again, President Obama, right? He he came in challenging that myth, was accused of it, and turned, and you could say. I mean, I, I throughout his eight years in office, he learned to sing that song perfectly mm -hmm. so much that what was the title of his biography after he left office? A Promised Land. A Promised Land. Irony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. if, if, if I would have written a book called A Promised Land, it would have been a New York Times bestseller too. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book called On Selling Truth. Mm -hmm. White landowning men don't want to hear On Selling Truth. They especially uh, don't want to hear On Selling Truth that attack both parties. Right. You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. That's a good segue into talking about this, this phenomenon pits, which is defined in your book as perpetrator-induced post-traumatic stress. And I would love to hear from you how that's like continuing to contribute to just the, the trauma and aftermath of this abuse just in present day. So one of the things we point out in the book, and this is just experience from both myself and my co-authors speaking, is we would get varied reactions to our presentations, depending on who was in the audience, right? If it was people mm -hmm. of color, they would be solemn, but also almost giddy, right? Excited to hear and learn that these things they knew were there actually had policies and, and specific dates and examples. And we would also see reactions from white people who would come up to us afterwards, literally like they had just a deer in the headlights, right? They just didn't mm. know what had hit them. And they would say the same two things over and over and over again, which was, I had no idea the history was that bad and tell me how to fix it. And after seeing that literally for years and not just seeing that response, but seeing the reaction, sometimes the outrageous outbursts of my audience my white audience in my presentations, literally sometimes standing up in the middle of a presentation and calling me a liar. I, I began to observe what I 
what looked like trauma to me. Yeah. In both sides of my audience. And so the, the challenge is, is when we, when we talk about trauma, most people immediately go to PTSD, mm -hmm. which is a post-traumatic stress or even a post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's an individual diagnosis for someone who's experienced a single horrifying event. It affects you mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. It's kind of this all-encompassing condition, but it's an individual diagnosis. Now there's another trauma called a complex PTSD. And that trauma doesn't come from a single event and it comes from a series of events. So if you can get PTSD from being assaulted, you can get complex PTSD from living in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. If you can get PTSD from being in a battle, you can get complex PTSD from living in a war zone. Now, psychologists have observed that the symptoms of a complex PTSD can be seen in the children and grandchildren of the people who experience the trauma. They don't quite know how it gets there, but it's definitely been observed. Mm -hmm. There's a third trauma called HTR, which is historical trauma. And historical trauma is not an individual diagnosis. It's how psychologists understand the, the dissatisfaction in a much broader demographic. It was first observed in communities after boarding schools and removal. Mm -hmm. You could also observe it in African-American communities after enslavement or Jim Crow or segregation, mass incarceration. You could see it in Japanese-American communities after internment camps or in Jewish communities after the Holocaust. It's a, it's a dissatisfaction in a broad community. And so I began to refer to HTR as a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD. So if that makes sense. And so by understanding all three of those traumas, it's very helpful when you go into a presentation to talk about, to be aware of that, because that trauma is going to be evident in your audience. Right. And so you can prepare for what triggers them. You can prepare for what they're wrestling with. So you want to be aware of these traumas. So your presentation and the work you're trying to do doesn't get derailed. That's very helpful. But the problem is, is the most disruptive demographic in any dialogue on race is white people, both men and women. And the, the challenge is, is we do not have an adequate paradigm for understanding white people in these conversations about race. Mm -hmm. And so we have two places we immediately put white people, which is either they're racist or they're fragile. Mm -hmm. So if white people are racist merely because they lack pigmentation in their skin, it means every time they say something that I disagree with, I have to treat that as a threat mm -hmm. and respond accordingly. That's not helpful. Mm -hmm. White people are racist merely because they lack pigmentation It mean, in their skin. It means that they have no place in the dialogue, which is not helpful mm -hmm. as we're trying to sort these things out. The other paradigm we have is white people are fragile, right? So after the lynching of George Floyd in, in 2020, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for almost a year, I think. Mm -hmm. Robin has some good insights into the psyche going on behind whiteness, but I wrestled with her paradigm of fragility 
because when you label something as fragile, it compels two different responses to it, right? One is you treat it very gently and don't disrupt it at all so you don't break it. Or B, you ignore the sign that it's fragile, you treat it as normal or even rougher, and you intentionally break it. Neither one of those are helpful, mm -hmm. right? If I'm always having to smooth things over for white people or if I'm having to intentionally break them, that's not it's not a healthy paradigm to, to address what we're trying to, to work on. And so I begin to observe and point out that I, I think I, I said to some of my colleagues as I was observing people after my presentations, I said, I think I'm seeing trauma in my white audiences, but I have no place to put that. It's not a PTSD. It's not a complex PTSD and it's not a historical trauma, but their reactions appear to, to come from a, a, a place of trauma. But I, I, I was baffled because I didn't know what to do with it. And so I actually met with one of my colleagues and we took like a day. I, I traveled to where he was and we, we spent a day. We looked at research. We talked with other psychologists. We wrestled with it. I laid out all my observations. And at the end of the day, my colleague said to me, he said, Mark, when you first came here, I was doubtful that I was skeptical that you were observing trauma in white people. But you've convinced me that it's there. But like you, I have no idea how to categorize it. And it was after that, probably a few months later, I found this book, a book by Rachel McNair, who's a psychologist who was studying the psychological consequences of killing. And she came up with an understanding of what she called a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. And in studying this, she she found that Pitts had all of the symptomology of PTSD, except PTSD afflicted the victim of the horrifying event and Pitts afflict the perpetrator or the person who caused it. And once I found that research, I suddenly had a tool that I could base my, uh, my hypothesis on, which is white America is another group of traumatized people, mm -hmm. right? If you can, if, if, if we have such a thing as a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD, which is what's afflicting our people of color, then might not Pitts also have a multi-generational communal manifestation at a complex level, the trauma that I was observing in white people. The fascinating thing is when I first said that, white, as I first began talking about that publicly, white people loved it and they loved it because it allowed them to claim the role of a victim mm -hmm. it allowed them to say oh yes look i'm a victim of this too and i have these things happening to me and i can't control them and blah 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 and they loved it mm -hmm. and i had to tell them absolutely not you are not a victim of trauma this is a perpetration induced traumatic stress like you did this, this is, yourself. This is based on what you did, what your community did, what you're standing on, and even what you're calling white privilege, right? White people love to talk about their white privilege and how they can be better stewards of their privilege. Even the people who are leaning to the left, they're like, oh, I want to be a better steward of my privilege and share my privilege with other people. And I'm like, that's not a privilege. What you, The reason you have something other people don't is not because you've been privileged or blessed. 
It's because you are enjoying the fruits of white supremacy. And you don't, the, the solution to that is not just to share it more because that still perpetuates the injustice. Right. This is why in my entire book and in my speaking, I don't use the word white privilege. I call it what it is. It's white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so I began to, I, I have to reinforce to my white audiences, you are not victims of trauma, but you have a traumatic response based on the history that you're standing on because right you can't build a nation on 500 years of dehumanizing injustice without traumatizing yourself yeah and the first symptom of trauma is shock and denial which describes white america to a t you're absolutely right right it describes white america to a t they're in a, a massive state of shock and denial Right. One of the reasons there the two of the things we did in our book, and this is to address both the left and the right trauma. Our book is deeply rooted in scripture. We demonstrate what Jesus said, how he lived. We root our arguments in the scripture. Why? Because the right-leaning audience would love to debate us on no, that's not what the Bible says. So basically we demonstrate look at we're actually telling you what your own scriptures say mm -hmm. and we're giving you the words of jesus who said i my kingdom's not this earth right mm -hmm. who said if you want to follow me pick up your cross and and suffer with me right if, uh, this is so we we make that very clear we root that very deeply in scripture and we do that to address the shock and denial of our right-leaning audiences we also are very selective and at times even tried to avoid quoting historians and theologians and academics. And we try to put first and foremost, the direct quote. So we critique Constantine or not, Con we, we critique Augustine, not by primarily quoting theologians, but by quoting primarily Augustine. Augustine himself, yeah. We don't critique Lincoln by quoting historians, we critique Lincoln by quoting Lincoln. Why? Because the left would love to distract themselves by going down an academic or theological rabbit hole mm -hmm. of this line of thinking or that way of doing theology or this line of doing history. And then they never have to deal with what Augustine actually said and did or what Lincoln actually said and did. And they could distract themselves that way. And so this is where it's the left and the right. It's not just one side or the other. Both sides hold these values, are deeply, deeply affected by them. And we have to address them at both levels or both sides will completely disrupt and blow up the conversation. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciated that, that pattern in the book of like, here's something that happens, you know, in Constantine time. And then you like kind of flash forward and like quote Trump or quote Lincoln. And like, this is like directly rooted in this type of teaching. So that was very, very well done. And I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of, of our time here and want to make sure that we get through get through a lot. So I would love to just chat a little bit about this, this trauma, this complex trauma that you talk about the complex trauma in the American story, and just how that is contributing to to spaces, current spaces, 
of abuse in our in our like present day right now. So when we look at the way the church is causing harm and oppressing people, one of the one of the parts of my journey, I'm actually working on a book right now called Decolonizing Faith. And this is much more going to be a book about my story of understanding my my faith journey of how can I still be a Christian, even though I've identified all these massive problems with the church and with the Christian tradition and faith. And I mean, I could go on for hours about the ways, the things I'm going to put into this book. But one of the things I'm looking at very most closely is how especially have the scriptures been weaponized mm -hmm. to oppress people. There's two things I'll, I'll highlight here. The first is, and I, I actually, I don't have, won't have time to go into it all right now. I could easily talk for an hour on this thing alone, but I started a conference. I co-founded a conference with both crew and university called would Jesus eat fry bread. And the purpose of the conference was to create a space where Native students could come and ask difficult questions about faith, the Christian faith specifically, and about Jesus that they wouldn't be able to ask in on their reservations or in their own communities. And it really was a look at how can we, what does it mean to be Native and be a Christian? Because the whole history of Christianity with Indigenous peoples has been a colonial history, basically saying, God loves you, but... God loves you when you speak English and when you celebrate, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. God hates your pagan rituals and your your laughing parties and your your you know your other things that you do. And so, right, this is what was perpetuated by the boarding schools and all of that stuff. And so, I this was several about almost two and a half years ago now. I was looking very closely to the distinction that. Jesus himself had in interacting with Jewish people and interacting with Gentiles. Now, with Jewish people, especially when they demonstrated great faith, Jesus responded with this overwhelming inclusive reaction. So he touched lepers, right? He listened to the entire story of bleeding women. He went home with tax collectors. He even went back to the village of a Samaritan woman, right? Whenever anyone remotely associated with Judaism demonstrated a great faith to Jesus, he went over and above to demonstrate his inclusivity for them. However, he responded very differently to Gentiles. There's really only three stories of Jesus healing Gentiles in the Gospels. There is the centurion who... Jesus is going to heal his servant, the centurion who's charged with keeping the peace, right? We also have the, the story of the Canaanite woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon and is trying to get to Jesus. And first the disciples push her away. She finally breaks through. She comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want you to heal my daughter. And Jesus says, I'm here for the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. She's tenacious. She's like, no, I want you to heal my daughter. And he says, why would I give it to the dogs what was meant for the children? And she, again, doesn't give up. She says, but even the dogs eat the scraps under the table. And Jesus, amazed by her faith, heals her daughter. Then you have the demoniac. Jesus goes across, meets this man, 
possessed by a legion of demons. He heals him. He's sitting there with this demoniac in his right mind. And Jesus begins to make plans to leave. He starts packing up to go back across the lake. And the demoniac is begging him, begging him to let Jesus follow, to, to let him follow him. And Jesus says, no, you can't follow me. Go back to your own people. And that's it. Those are just three actions with, with Gentiles, where he responds like you would expect any first century Jewish rabbi to respond when confronted with a Gentile, which is he holds them at arm's length. And so I came to realize that, yeah, I mean, not only am I a Gentile as a native man, you're a Gentile as a white woman, right? Had you or I met Jesus in the first century, he may have given us the healing we were requesting, but he definitely would have not welcomed us into and come into our homes, would not have eaten with us, would not have let us follow him, and would have made quite certain that we knew we were second in line. That's what Jesus did. Now, the reason this is more troubling for my people than it is for white people is because, right, if you want to create, I'll just call it the heresy, that Jesus accepted everybody, including your, your outside group, you have to do one of two things, which is either you have to become a Jew or you have to make Jesus part of your group. And so white Western Christianity made Jesus white. So now, guess what they get to do? They get to treat other oppressed people like Jesus treated the centurion. I'm not going into your house. I'm not going to go out of my way to go there. That would cause a major problem. It allows them to say, no, you can't follow me, right? Your presence in my inner circle would be such a cultural disruption. It would blow everything up. So no, you can't follow me. Or allows to say, yeah, you're second in line. Why would I give to the dogs what was meant for the children? And still say, we're loving you. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. You see, Western Christianity they have a written theology about Jesus. And that theology basically says that people, all of creation is reconciled back to creator at the cross through the resurrection, right? This is where the temple curtain tears in two. This is where everyone now has access into the Holy of Holies. It's at the cross. And they, the church confesses this every time they take communion, mm -hmm. right? It's the cross. It's the resurrection that reconciles us back to God. But they teach Jesus like that reconciliation happened at the birth. And so they say things like, yeah, Jesus loved everybody. I don't think the Canaanite woman felt very loved. She got her healing, but she was also told she was second in line, right? And so we, the church teaches Jesus' life and say he accepted everybody, even though they confess the reconciliation didn't happen until his death and resurrection. And then they just ignore the ways that he was actually somewhat exclusive of Gentiles throughout his entire ministry. Even Acts 2, which the church loves to point to as this great kumbaya moment of all this diversity coming together, right? You have people from every nation under the world in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile, on the Jew, on the disciples, and lets them speak the language of the nations. But it says there were Jews from all over the world. They were all proselytes. All the men were circumcised. All the women and the children followed the law, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. They all, they all 
you know, follow the laws of the temple and of the synagogue. They all worshipped in Hebrew. They had already converted to and assimilated to Jewish culture. It's not until Acts 10 that you see the first uncircumcised Gentile being baptized into the church. And not by Jesus, but by Peter, right? And it's true. You will find no evidence of Jesus or his disciples eating anything unclean with Gentiles in the entire Gospels. That was always a trajectory. And it was Jesus' blood that allowed it to happen. But the inclusion didn't come, not in Jesus' ministry, but in the working of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the reasons, the questions I ask, right, is why is it now 200, 2,000 years after the life and death of Jesus? And the not only does the world struggle to acknowledge the humanity of everybody, but the church struggles to acknowledge yeah. the humanity of everybody. And the reason is, is because we're following the wrong model. We're following the model of Jesus, which was a pre-reconciliation model. Instead of following the model of the Holy Spirit, which came because of Jesus's blood, mm. right? When Jesus was comforting his disciples, he said to them, I'm going to go away, but that's better for you because then I'm going to send you my spirit. My spirit will dwell within you, will remind you of everything I've taught, and will enable you to do even greater things than I've done. And most of us think that's hyperbole. But what Peter did in Acts 10 was absolutely greater than anything Jesus did because he baptized the first uncircumcised Gentile into the church. And so this is right. This is one of the things that we have to, we have to work through. Basically the, 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 the white supremacy in the church of like, we are the chosen people that has infiltrated the church, but that was never true. Yeah. That is a, a very interesting, just a paradigm shift for all of Absolutely. us. And I'm, very much looking forward to your next book for the sake of time i have i had two final questions but for the sake of time you do have i listened to the audiobook so you have your your conclusion on the audiobook i don't know how many pages it is but it was like 45 minutes of just kind of like like what this conversation looks like going forward and so i would just like really encourage folks to to read the book to read just kind of like next steps because i know that we probably can't get into a whole lot of next steps but i do like to end interviews with talking about art and incorporating art and so my question for you as we wind down is are there any like art like a book a movie a tv show or anything that you feel like portrays any of this in a way that you find to be accurate. Specifically, I, I, I'm curious about just like the American history and some of these interactions. And I have I found just, oh, fine. <laughs> very few things in the public, especially the mainstream public spaces that are willing to acknowledge this. And, and the, the challenge is, is that even the things that acknowledge the history, and Singtron points this out very well, my co-author in his book, um, Prophetic Lament, that the American's narrative does not know how to deal with its brokenness or its past. And so it has to, at every possible turn, pivot towards exceptionalism. Yeah, like a positive spin. So everything, even we can't even leave a Good Friday service. 
right? Without saying, yes, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We can't even leave a good Friday service in a space of lament. Mm -hmm. And so everything I see, right, is, is it, it may, even if it does include a taste of this history, it always ends with this exceptional note of, but we've, we've, you know, we've fixed that or we've done, I mean, even, even look at the language we use, like right? racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. White Americans love to talk about how they're invested in racial reconciliation. Reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony. Exactly. You understand race, that harmony never existed. It eliminates a perpetrator. It, it, it's like, yeah, we just have to go back to this point where we all were together. And like race is not a, a, a genetic difference. Race is a human construct and white America constructed race for the purpose of dividing. You can't have racial reconciliation. Race exists to divide and oppress. That's why we have race. Yeah. And so again, it, that's the challenge is you know, so I, I, when I look at these things, I love what, when, when native artists are wrestling with these things, but when I look at something mainstream or even the African-American community is able to teach this stuff better, but none of this stuff, like, it, it, right. If you want this stuff to go mainstream, you have to do what president Obama did. You have to do what Cory Booker right. did. You even, have to, do, you even right. have to do what, what, what Deb Holland did, right. Which when she ran, she ran for Congress, they, they, Yes, they'll put you there, but they won't let you talk about these things. Mm. They'll let you point, give out the history, but they won't let you, right, really. Uh, well, I feel like it's very around. telling that there wasn't just like, oh, one, two, three, four, five different options, like even just like mainstream culture, art, you know, movies, TVs, books, like like you can't even write about it or create about it in a main in in a way that will be accepted into the mainstream culture and i feel like that's very very telling <laughs> for sure but yeah i just if you if you do have recommendations i would love i would love to hear your recommendations but as we are winding down is there anything else that you would like to say just to, to wrap up so just a perfect example of this right i think it was in the first episode of the newsroom which was a story, this TV show, I forget when it was back in the 2010s, maybe. I forget when exactly it came out. It was written by oh, Aaron Sorkin, mm -hmm. who is a great writer, right? He, he, stuff, he yeah. did The West Wing and several other really good TV shows. And there's a there's an, a, a scene in the first episode of The Newsroom where I forget the name of the, of, of the reporter is, is in this large conference and he's asked what makes America great by a college student. And he goes into this long monologue, maybe three or four minutes long, pointing out all of the ways American exceptionalism is a myth and we are not great. And we lack in all these places and lack in all these places. And it's this really gripping and honest critique of our country. But then he ends that speech. <laughs> And he basically says, we are not great. If you think we're great, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he says, but we sure used to be. And then he talks about how we used to, you know, fight for things that mattered, you know, implying to civil rights. We used to fight for things. We used to, you know, make big aspirations and go to the moon and talk about all these things that we, and what's fascinating about that, right, is he's talking most clearly 
about our history, but even more specifically about the 40s, 50s, 60s, and maybe even the 70s, about how great the America, United States America was in those decades. And it's like, you look at the African-American community, you look at women, you look at Native Americans, you look at any other marginalized community in our country and ask them if they if things were better off 40 or 50 years ago. And the answer is without a doubt, no. Right. <laughs> the only people who can look back on American history with any sense of nostalgia are white landowning men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whoa! Very, this is so telling. This question, like, we need a whole other episode just like talking about this. Of just, it's so telling that like you can't think of any anything that's like, oh, that was like well done. Oh, well done. <laughs> that's that's really that's really interesting. Because almost everything, and I'm sure there's some pieces that I'm not coming to mind, but everything mm-hmm. I think of in the mainstream, if you want it to sell. Mm-hmm. has to affirm the myth of American exceptionalism, which means it and has, has to, to have a very pivotal lens. That that lens has to be there in some capacity and and be a very prominent voice in in that story. And I'm just like every every story that I'm thinking of that deals with just racism and the black community and women, the oppression of women. There's always this very pivotal like white male voice still in that story as a way to just kind of like draw in that narrative and make that narrative, make it accessible to that narrative. Cause that's still the narrative. That's the primary focus. It's very telling. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We could have talked for three more hours. This is fun, Catherine. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.